it's that fantastic blend of love letter and, and observational humor that lives as the personality for L.A. Because L.A. definitely is a character and a personality in this movie, which is an important part to making the film as good as it is. Post-watch episode three, Rob here. Find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcatchers, as well as crookedtable.com. And I want to say up front, I know this episode has been a long time coming. There's been an elongated, uh, unplanned hiatus here. I had recorded a bunch of these in advance of my parental leave, and I guess I forgot how hectic life with a newborn has been, so editing has been a little, a little slow going. So... Hopefully we can get back into a little bit more of a normal schedule with these and uh, my sister show, Franchise Detours, where we're currently midway through the Child's Play slash Chucky movies. But for this episode of Close Watch, and thank you so much, those of you who have been patient with us and waiting for this episode, because there's a bunch more uh, in the can already, a really fun episodes coming up in the weeks and months ahead. So on this particular one, uh, Thomas Green of Movies After Work sat down with me and talked about 2005's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, written and directed by Shane Black. We're going to talk about how this is essentially the secret origin of Robert Downey Jr.'s comeback, its role in sort of the the buddy action genre that's no longer really prevalent. A lot of those R-rated buddy comedy uh, action comedies have sort of fallen by the wayside. And we'll talk about why this is a movie you desperately need to check out if you have not seen it, especially if you're an RDJ fan. But with this movie coming just before Robert Downey Jr. started playing Iron Man and now let's, you know, rewatching it after he has vacated the Marvel Cinematic Universe, how does it play today? Let's get going and find out. Welcome to Close Watch with Robert Yanis Jr., the show where we get to know our guests through the movies they love. This episode, I am joined by Thomas Green of Movies After Work. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So tell people who don't know about your podcast and and what you guys do over there, tell them what you're all about. So the podcast I do is called Movies After Work. My friend Alex and I, we essentially just turned our 1 a.m. trip to Denny's into podcast, uh, where we just talk about movies, trailers, news, and parenting. We're both full-time workers and full-time parents, toddlers. So we've we've had a couple of episodes where we discuss the joys of potty training and things of that nature. I, I did an episode way back in the day on the previous version of this show, the Crooked Table podcast, about how being a dad changes the way you watch movies. Like, have you found that experience and if so, how has it, I don't know, affected the way that you you watch movies or or the lens through which you you take in whatever film or whether it's something you're seeing for the first time or something you've seen a million times and are now just seeing it in a new light? Yeah, it, it definitely plays a, a huge part because movies that I just enjoyed suddenly have a bigger significance of like, oh, I really need to show this to her movies where it's about a dad and and his daughter obviously are always going to hit me yeah so much now anything that's even remotely (laughs) yeah 
Well, the, the anecdote I always I've mentioned a couple of times on our show is when she was about six months old, I watched Coco for the first time. I was just thinking of Coco when you said that. And I'm thinking, picturing the scene we had with, with, yeah, with, with the, oh my God, I'm forgetting the main character. One of the, with the characters. Miguel. Yes. Yeah. With Miguel and Coco, but also earlier with Coco as a little girl and her father. Yes. And him leaving and singing that song. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just no, literally no, had the exact could. same Coco <laughs> popped into my head too. And it's so funny that you mentioned it. Yeah. So no one had warned me. So as soon as we get to the point where they're in the, the pit and we're finding all this stuff out, I just found myself picking up my daughter, putting her on my lap, like wrapping my arms around her. And I spent the rest of the movie crying because it was just being a new father and, and experiencing something like that. And then, and then I made, and then sadly, the time we were recording this a month ago, my grandparents passed away. Oh, and so at work, yeah. at work, we turned the, the movie on. Right. So I'm at that end of the movie where it's okay. We're trying to get a daughter to remember her father, but we also have a kid dealing with a grandparent about to die. Mm-hmm. And we had that on at work. And I watched for like three, four seconds of Miguel singing to Coco to get her to remember and immediately just went into the office and was like, I can't go back out there until this movie is over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's just not happening. But yeah, it's the, it, I, there are a few movies I need to rewatch now because I'm curious how I'll absorb them now that I'm a father. It changes the way that you relate to things emotionally. It's funny how you hear your whole life about, oh, wait till you have kids. You're, you'll see light in a totally different way. And then <laughs> once you do have kids, you're like, oh my God, I do. Uh, that's yeah. How did that happen? When did this, it's just almost overnight, I think you start to just de- develop into a new version of the person you were before. And, and I think movies as a reflection of life and of art mirrors that change back to you. Yes. And a, a weird tolerance develops where you'll yes. look at a, you, like you'll look at a movie and just the movie is so painful to watch. But then you look and see how much your kid is enjoying it. And suddenly it's one of the greatest films ever made because of how <laughs> it makes them. Any any examples, anything specific that you're like, all right, I guess this is, I can deal with it. Finding Dory is a big one. My uh, daughter loves Finding Dory also. Yeah. yeah. My my daughter's a huge fan of, of both of those movies. I'm not, but she loves them. So I'm always happy to have them on. The, there's the live action Clifford the Big Red Dog coming out. I watched the trailer and I went, oh, this looks painful. <laughs> and then I showed it to her. And the second she realized what it was, she stood up from Same. the couch and just stood there and stared in awe at the TV. And I found myself <laughs> suddenly in my head going, I'm really excited for this movie to come out. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, same. When that trailer came out, I saw everyone on film Twitter tearing it apart. And I was like, I get, and I, and I tweeted something to the, I showed yeah. my daughter and obviously she also knows Clifford and she was excited. And she has been obviously not going to movies for a while. Cause none of us have very much the last year and a half. And so then I tweeted something like, listen, I understand why you guys are tearing this apart, but my daughter is like all about this. <laughs> so I guess I'm going to see Clifford the Big Red Dog in theaters this fall or whenever it's coming out. Yeah, it's it's funny how that happens. Uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't gotten to the age where I, I watch trailers and have that slow like realization of, oh God, I'm seeing this in theaters, whether I want to or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's funny that we started this episode talking about parenting because the movie we're going to discuss is not appropriate for small children. 
And the only father-daughter relationship in it is about as toxic yes. as it can get. So it's weird that we're like, and now dad corner, but also yeah. this movie is not a very good depiction of, of that dynamic. So we are going to be discussing the 2005 action comedy thriller, etc. It's got a lot of multiple genres mashed in oh, here. Yes which I love, which we'll get mm -hmm. into in a second. From 2005, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, written directed by Shane Black. From Shane Black, the creator of Lethal Weapon. Do not play detective. Moron. Go home before the bad guys do something bad to you. Two corpses in three hours. I mean, that's unusual, right? Yes. Comes a mystery. It's a frame up. First things first. Do you have the corpse? I, I, I got rid of it. You threw it away. Yeah. Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No. The definition of the word idiot. That starts with a kiss. Why'd you lie to me? It was an excuse to stay around you, so I mean, I think... Ow! Did I just cut off your finger? Yeah. It's on the floor. Pick it up. Pick it up. And ends with a bang. Where is the girl? You put a live round in that gun. Oh, yeah. There was like an 8% chance. Hey, who taught you math? So... Thomas, what is it about, why did you want to dis discuss this movie specifically? And what is a little bit about your first experience watching it? What was your initial reaction? Well, this I, this movie came into my life at, the, at just a perfect time of reinvigorating my love for film, but also became the bedrock of how I like to write. Because as I went through college, I started writing more. And this movie was really a baseline for how i i wrote but the the big thing from is for me with this movie is i bought it based entirely off of the trailer like i i couldn't go see it in theaters because i was living in a small town so it never played but the second it was out on dvd i bought it and then took it home watched it and yeah it was just a fantastic movie i probably watched it once a day for the first week i owned it at least yeah, to your point, this came out with a $15 million budget and made, I think, $4 million <laughs> domestically and like, I think roughly 15 worldwide. So not not a big, not a big moneymaker, unfortunately. But, but yes, and Shane Black, for people listening and don't know, iconic, legendary mm -hmm. screenwriter. I think was was the highest paid writer in Hollywood at one point. Did the yep. Lethal Weapon and The Last Boy Scout, The Long Kiss Goodnight, The Monster Squad, which I grew up with, <laughs> Last Action Hero, which I'm a defender of, and I know a lot of people hate. Yeah, I see? go to the map for that movie. It's it's pretty great. I feel like people just didn't understand it at the time that oh, it was a parody. They were just like, "Well, this is a stupid Arnold movie." I'm like, "Well, <laughs> it's a, pointing out how stupid those Arnold." Go back. Go. <laughs> this is a little sidebar. A little Shane Black corner now. Go back and watch Last Action Hero. Then go watch Commando and tell me that it's not almost, almost just as, almost as ridiculous as Last Action Hero. Nobody gets impaled in the back of the head with an ice cream cone like they do in Last Action Hero or dies from like a, a fart bomb or whatever. It's been a yeah. while since I've seen it, but it, it's, it's in the same vein. It's not a huge stretch to get to that point. I've always imagined that Shane Black had a little notepad in his uh, military outfit for Predator. Mm -hmm. And as he would sit there and listen to Arnold talking and bragging about stuff, he'd be like, huh? Yeah, great. Going to write that one down for later. Okay. <laughs> and I, I feel like that's how most of that movie got written was probably just him on the set of Predator just being yeah. awestruck. So you bought this movie, you blind bought it on DVD. I, I also own, own it on DVD. I don't even remember 
when I first saw it, I think I probably rented it because Robert Downey Jr. had been around forever. He'd had ups and downs, obviously, very public mm-hmm. ups and downs. But I'd already known him from Weird Science and like Soap Dish and and all these movies he did in the 80s and 90s. So he'd been around for a while. What about the, the trailer made you want to buy it? And, and what was your takeaway when the credits rolled the first time you you spun that thing? Well, funnily, the, the, the trailer... My main focus on the trailer initially was Val Kilmer because mm-hmm. my first theatrical Batman movie was Batman Forever. So he was he was my initial theatrical Batman. So seeing him in a movie got me excited. And then I watched the trailer and there was this guy, Robert Downey Jr. I knew my dad watched him on Ally McBeal, but I didn't know too much more about him. But the stuff that they were saying was just so funny and it resonated with me of just that's not abusive humor per se, but just deadpan condescension, which was how my friends and I talked to each other all the time. (laughs) So, so hearing, hearing people talking like my friends and I did in a movie was just, was awesome. And the action looked cool in it. And, the the music in it was great the dizzy gillespie's song bang bang is is in the trailer and used perfectly and then i can't remember the artist's name but please don't let me be misunderstood the same version that was used in kill bill volume one but it was just such a beautifully crafted trailer that i felt like i didn't know enough about the movie but that i needed to to know all of it I feel like this is one of those films that if you know about it and if you've seen it, you love it. But so many people just, it just, because it was in that period post Ally McBeal, pre Iron Man, but everybody, Iron Man showed up and everybody was like, Oh, Robert Downey Jr. is back. And I was like, he's been back. Did nobody see, was I the only one that saw kiss, kiss, bang, bang. What happened? And I guess it was, it was you and I, Thomas, who, who saw this one and we're like, this because the thing about it that's interesting is that this is like the secret origin of his comeback. This is like his yeah. pre comeback because there's so much that he brings to Tony Stark that he had that is is at play in this movie. Oh, yes, absolutely. And yeah, and this this movie really was the beginning of the start of his career, the restart of his career, because. I know Shane Black went to the map for him and took some, I don't know if it was full on pay cuts, but basically allowed Warner Brothers to over dictate a few things pre-production to be allowed to have him in the movie. And then studios started to see, oh, Robert Downey Jr. can make it through an entire film shoot. Okay, now that we know he can do that again, now we can start putting him in things like Gothica and a few other films before Jon Favreau finally also went to the map for him for Iron Man. Yeah, exactly. So for you who who wasn't particularly up on or were familiar with Downey when you saw this the first time, was this just a huge discovery for you? Like, well, where has this guy been my whole life kind of thing? It, it was a massive discovery for me. And of course, my, and my dad sitting there hearing me talk about, oh, I just discovered this guy, Robert Downey Jr. He's so good. And of course, my dad's just staring at me deadpan and just going, okay, so soap dish and that listed like two or three movies. <laughs> just went, yeah. And it was, we, it was at the time where Netflix was still so small that they weren't, didn't really, couldn't even really afford major marketing. 
but we we had it in its initial inception so he was just like okay i've put soap dish and a couple other movies onto the netflix rental queue so when those movies come in you can watch them Mm -hmm. then it just became this it yeah it just started this whole observation into him that led me down multiple paths yeah because i think people now forget that he he was leading man status from like Mm -hmm. i don't know the late 80s to like the mid nineties, especially when you had a uh, soap dish, like we said, obviously he had his Oscar nomination for Chaplin heart mm-hmm. and souls, which is a movie. I feel like again, that oh, yeah. slipped through the cracks, that cracks that is, is probably what one of what I like to call TBS classics where it's like, <laughs> nobody did it do. It, it came out in theaters. It's got a lot of people It exists, but nobody really talks about it, but it always happens to be on like Sunday afternoon while you're sitting around the mm-hmm. house. City Slickers 2, The Legend of Curly's Gold is like one of the, the main examples oh, yeah. that I go to for that. <laughs> we were like, I've seen this like a bazillion times and is it good? I don't know. It's there. It's fine. <laughs> it gets the job done. But yes, yeah, he he was a, a huge deal there. Did you watch this for the first time with your dad? Like who who did you watch this with? You mentioned about, about how it felt like seeing yourself and your friends represented on film did you watch this in a group setting or was this just a, a solo watch the first time first time was a, a solo watch for me where i just I, I bought the film when it came out and then just went home and put it right in i had a ps2 in my room that i used as a dvd player so i popped it into there and and just went watch the movie from start to finish and it yeah i just i couldn't couldn't turn away from it didn't want to pause it nothing and then it was one of those movies that was always high on the stack of movies I'm going to try to force anyone that hangs out with me for more than five minutes to watch. (laughs) Yeah. Now, I want to talk about Harry Lockhart and his connection to Tony Stark, like we alluded to already. Mm -hmm. What what is it about this character that you think resonates with both of us, for for sure, and with so many people that, that watch this movie? What is it about this these characters that makes them so compelling, particularly with Harry? And then we'll we'll move to uh, to Gay Perry and uh, Harmony. Well, I think with with Harry, he's like Tony Stark. He's very fast talking, very quippy. But unlike Tony Stark, he wears his his shortcomings and his insecurities on his sleeve. So you get them right out the gate for the comedic effect, whereas with Tony Stark, you for the character development and the character death, it's the whole onion peel thing where you're just revealing them slowly but surely. But of course, with Harry, you just get them right out the gate for the sake of the humor of it. He's also, I think, the audience surrogate in that obviously he's narrating the story, but he's the one that that goes to L.A. for the first time from New York. He's the one that that who's undergoes the biggest change and he's also the one who's put in these very as the movies uh meta commentary on movies and film noir and and detective stories plays out he's the one that never knows what he's he's the one that never knows what he's doing he's the one that pees on the corpse he's the (laughs) one whose finger gets eaten by a dog he's like constantly he's the buffoon of this movie which is why i think it's interesting that he feels so tony stark Esque, but he's also an, an idiot through a lot of as gay Perry oh, yeah. constantly tells him. And yes. so it's 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 like he's like the anti-Tony Stark at the same time. Oh, very much so. Very much so. But it, it's what makes the character work. It's it's a great study just with those two characters alone. 
the difference between what those subtle differences about a character's personality, how much they can drastically change the tone of your movie or the tone of a character's arc in general. I think that redemption story for him too is probably is is may, might be one of the elements of this film that keeps me coming back. Obviously it's funny and, and the performances are strong and all that, but it's also, he's on a real redemption arc in this film, Ooh. starting as a small time crook and his, he and his, his partner get chased down by the cops. His partner gets shot. And then we have that audition scene. What a showcase <laughs> for Robert Downey Jr.'s acting ability oh, yeah. where he runs in there and he's panicked and he's just like flatly reciting the lines. And then, connects to the material because it's literally what's happening to him, which, which, which is hilarious and heartbreaking at the same time when he really like starts to break down. Quit acting like the good guy jerk off. You got your partner killed. He was in over his head. You knew it. You may as well have pulled the trigger. You killed him. No, I, I didn't, I didn't kill him. He wanted in. I didn't want him to come out and he insisted. I said, you got to stay at home, but he doesn't listen to me. He's such a stupid son of a bitch. Uh, I killed him, didn't I? Tell me your thoughts on on that scene and how it it feels like almost a microcosm of the entire film. I I grew up doing uh, community theater, so watching somebody do this audition where they were going through the spectrum of being absolutely terrible to holy crap is this really happening at an extra level of entertainment it was like the whole movie of waiting for Guffman in one scene in terms of just that the connective tissue for me but that moment is fun fascinating to me because uh, while there have been movies like it before or movies after this it's the moment in the movie for me that it makes a really interesting turn because this is a crime. This should be a crime thriller. This right. movie, it's got lots of twists and turns. It's got lots of surprises, lots of action, lots of morally dubious characters. Lots of and heavy subject matter, like lots of parental very abuse stuff. and like, yeah, yes. all kinds of stuff. It's yeah. yes. Lots of non-comedic material, but you get the comedy in it from the fact that you've got this, main your main character is not he is he is a character who either is not equipped to be or is not meant to be in this genre like he he's the character that yeah you could see him in like an offbeat romantic comedy or just some like small town like oceans 11 but small scale comedy movie but then he accidentally finds himself in a completely different genre. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because according to my research, this is a Shane Black was initially trying to do something out of action after The Long Kiss Goodnight, which is a great movie that people should check mm-hmm. out. Still uh, one of Samuel L. Jackson's favorite movies that he's made. He's he has said. I've seen interviews Rightfully with him. So. He's like, I go back and watch that all the time if that's on, like because he loves that movie. And I think the fact that nobody saw it. Maybe loves makes him love it more. He's stumping over that film. But he was trying to do a romantic comedy. And James L. Brooks said, why don't you try and try and imagine the character, the as good as it gets character that Jack Nicholson played, Mm -hmm. playing the role, the Jake Giddis role in 
Chinatown China. that Jack Nicholson played. <laughs> and, that's, and so it's yeah. funny that you did, because that's what this movie is. It's like you, oh, take, yeah. you, you take Danny Ocean and put him in Chinatown and you're like, oh crap, what is this? Yeah. And, and that's the scene where they mash. That's the scene where he literally wanders into another movie. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's taking that, that fish out of water trope that everyone knows and is good as long as you're doing it right. But instead of just doing it in a basic sense of like, oh, it's a city guy stuck in the country or something like that. We're literally just putting somebody in a completely different genre of film than what they should be in. Absolutely. Yeah. It really creates probably the most unique Shane Black film that that he's ever made. Which is why it's crazy to think that this is his directorial debut. Yeah. Uh, he's only directed, really, at this point, four movies. Iron Man 3, again, with Downey, The Predator, mm-hmm. the which I, I have very mixed feelings on that movie. <laughs> and The Nice Guys, which is essentially, a spirit. it feels to me like a spiritual sequel to this. It was very him much trying so. to do this movie with two more famous than, than these two were in, in at the time of this movie's release. Two more famous guys, a bigger budget, and also still broke even worldwide. What are your, quickly before we get back to, to the, the cast of this film, what are your thoughts on The Nice Guys and how it compares to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? Which do you prefer and all of that? I think The Nice Guys is, is a great film. I don't feel like it exploits the, the chemistry between the two leads as well as this film does. And we've seen in like interviews and stuff like that, that Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling had some terrific, just natural buddy chemistry with each other. I just don't feel like it ever really made use of it as well as it could have. So, and it gets, he gets to do a little bit more than I think he needed to with a bigger budget. I think the small budget really helped him keep it simple with this film, which resulted in something really good. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it, it's more it's more crystallized that that the idea of a, a buddy cop noir comedy uh, duo, I think, is, is more crystallized in this one than it is in the Nice Guys, which is why now I'm I'm thinking about the how the Nice Guys is. is set in the 70s this is more contemporary mm. it's too bad we can't like mash those franchises together because they feel <laughs> like they're set in the same universe in a weird way harry accidentally walks into a room where they're working on time travel and accidentally trips into the machine <laughs> you joke but i would watch the hell out of that <laughs> oh no I, I i joke but at the same time i'm saying they're going we've we've seen weirder movies get made in hollywood so that yeah. that's really not outside the pale of things Yeah. So going from Robert Downey Jr. to Val Kilmer, you were mentioning he was your big draw to this movie because you saw him in Mm -hmm. Batman Forever. His character here is also, again, really playing against type, playing a a gay badass at a time where that wasn't really a a thing, especially on the big screen. And Shane Black's trying to break stereotypes with all of that. What what is what are your thoughts on on gay Perry and and how Kilmer really kills, no pun intended, kills it in this role. He he knocks it out of the park with this film. And I think one of the things that's the most impressive is you've got the rarity of a straight actor playing a gay character. And there's little hints of it in there. And there's like, there's little hints of, of the stereotype 
mannerisms and and vocalisms that you expect from Hollywood. There's little hints of them in there, but he's if they never once talked about his sexuality, most people probably would have no idea. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think that's great. And I but yeah, I think Val Kilmer in general, somebody who yeah, for for the 90s, almost killed himself to to be the big leading man in action films and, and epics and Oscar bait films. And now here he is playing the gay straight man to the bumbling oaf lead character and just clearly having the time of his life doing it, which was fantastic to see. Yeah, I, I think... They they do a really good job with that character of having even the elements that you mentioned. There is the writing isn't really has pretty so it stood the test of time. I think in a way that a lot of stuff from the mm-hmm. early two thousands even hasn't. Like there's light touches of of where the writing is like well that would be a little that's a little like maybe mm-hmm. slightly questionable or maybe Shane Black would do that a little differently today. But for the most part, it yeah. it, it doesn't really feel dated in the way that a lot of 80s or 90s movies that deal with gay characters do as you were saying and the elements that are in there are really more to feed the satirical elements of the movie where him using the f word the 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 derogatory for gay people f word with the the mannerisms and stuff that you like you mentioned with a commentary with other people where he teases that he's like messing with that one henchman and like, Oh, you want to fuck me, don't you? (laughs) And then you get that. One of my favorite jokes when he shoots the guy with the gun and then, and then Harry's like, Oh my God, I'm so glad you have a gun in there. I thought that was just something that maybe some of you could do. (laughs) And, and, and Harry's like, well, it's just, it's the joke. Even the jokes like that are more at Harry's expense for being such a doofus than they are like, yeah, anything homophobic in the writing. Yeah, he's he he in a movie with three lead performances, all of which I love. I almost want to say Val Kilmer's the MVP of this, but it's it's like really close because I, I love all three of these lead uh actors so much in this movie. It's a photo finish, but he really is what keeps everything together in this film. He keeps it grounded, he keeps the exposition going very smoothly very quickly and then yeah he just delivers his whole just every response he has to anything that harry says is brilliant and i still just love the fact and i feel like this had to have been a purposeful choice by shane black but i would say the most flamboyant moment in the entire movie is actually our introduction to the villain corbin brinson Mm -hmm. where like he just slides in out of nowhere and goes Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah no, like, totally. This totally, and he's a, he's very clearly straight because of the terrible things that he's doing. But he's clear. That's clearly the most like flamboyant thing that happens in the entire movie. So, and I feel like that alone is a choice of just like it's just this world. You've got Larry Miller in all of his, as always, brilliance, and. I mean, he's just all over the place with everything, too. And even if you watch some of the outtakes where they're just letting him improvise, he's still being hysterical while keeping it tasteful. And, and he doesn't even have that much screen time in this, but no. 
just you mentioned Larry Miller and I'm immediately thinking of the this the scene when he's talking he has three I think big moments in the party mm-hmm. when you first see him and he's talking about he's talking to Perry and he's like you see a guy and your mind says I want that he's like yeah. I just I just don't make that <laughs> leap he's like he says uh it's not it's just not the first place you're you're that's not the first thing you think of he says yeah. so so you get that you get the facial reaction when Robert Denny Jr. comes in and does the audition scene. And he's just like, oh my God, like, wow. Like, where did that come from? And then when he sees Harmony on television mm-hmm. and, he, and he's like, they always do this. They always, you can never yeah. see. <laughs> the way. And, and just those three, the fact that I, I remember those from watching the movie last night just goes to show you that it's like, he's so on point, even with that small role. And, it, and it's a testament to the strength of the ensemble that I think Black oh, put absolutely. together here. Yeah, there's not there's not a weak link in this film. There's not a single performer performance, anything like that, where you're sitting there and going, okay, well, they probably could have casted that a little bit better. Everyone understands the assignment and they are delivering in full. Yeah, and Kilmer being the 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 only real private detective of yes. the of the three leads who are all playing detective is is the gay character who's not normally depicted in these kinds of stories which is again the way in a way in which this movie flips expectations on their heads is absolutely is is this type of film and speaking specifically of like film noir and like detective hard-boiled like raymond chandler style films is that typically a genre you're into or is it more the the satirical uh comedic twist that black does here that that makes it appealing to you well, I like a little bit of both. I enjoy, one of my favorites is Maltese Falcon, but again, that's one where characters are being very, they're, again, it's got a lot of that same humor of being condescending. The Thin Man has some of the best banter in film history, in my opinion. So it's not a genre that doesn't exist without this dialogue. We're just putting, again, a character like Harry, who normally would not be a party to that needing to be that quick-witted into the to into the fray and so he often fails to to keep up with everyone else's quips and and speed that they're talking at and, and yet he consistently tries and thinking specifically of the very short-lived game of russian roulette that he, yeah. <laughs> that that's exactly trying. where my head went where's the girl boom yeah it's it's really it's speaking to his storyline and how he he is the, the invading force in this movie that if you take you take Harry out, Harmony is essentially the femme fatale, I guess. Perry is the detective. And you can see this movie, if Perry wasn't gay, you could see this being an entirely different movie with those two on the case deal. Yeah. Uh, but Harry's the X factor coming in and in between that. And the movie even establishes that Perry and Harmony know each other. They've like worked together before on different cases or he's, yeah. she's given him information, whatever. And then Harry just comes invading literally their city, their case, <laughs> the, the entire thing. And I, I love that element of it. And it really struck me that if this movie is about anything other than having a great time, it, it the thing about Harry's, like I was saying earlier, his redemption story that I think resonates with me is there's a scene later on where he's he's confiding in in harmony and he's saying I've never finished anything in my life my marriage etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. and it felt to me like it's low key this movie is maybe that's why I, I relate to 
Harry constantly feeling like he's in over his head. It, it feels like it's in a way about imposter syndrome where you're at a job oh, yeah. in a relationship, wherever. And you're like, I don't know. Do I belong here? Do, is this, does I, am I fitting in? Am I doing a good job? Did, do you, did you pick up or validate that read of it? Cause it feels to me that this is three years before obviously Iron Man, but also Tropic Thunder. And yet this is the case in which Robert Downey Jr. is a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. <laughs> I had never thought of worrying it like that, but that's that's right on the money. Yeah, for for me, the whole concept of of it being this guy who's trying to fit in, who's trying to fit in in this new environment, he's trying to like relive happier points in his life through harmony. Like he's he's all over the map with with the levels of acceptance that he's aiming for i was a senior in high school when i watched this a, a desperate need for acceptance from a main character is obviously gonna resonate in me but yeah and it's it's definitely what fuels so much this film because none of our characters really are who they normally would be gay perry is is gay which is is not typical of the genre Harmony is the femme fatale, except for she legitimately wants to focus on the case. Mm-hmm. Like she, she, she's not there for for anything. She's there. She wants the case solved. Let's get it solved. Get it all figured out. If you're if you're not going to help me with the case, then I'm I'm leaving. And she clearly actually means it, which is not normal with a femme fatale. And then yeah, you've got Harry, who normally your your main detective would be an outsider who wants to stay on the outside and instead you've got a romantic comedy buffoon who's desperately clinging for acceptance and so yeah you get all these great dynamics and who's a, who's a thief pretending to be a detective yes. pretending to be an actor <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which uh, again i think it's that dimensionality with harry that makes me keep coming back to this film and to that character, because I'm like, I get it. Like you empathize with him in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You you can his, he feels responsible. As I said with the audition scene, you feel he feels responsible for his partner's presumed death at that's at that point. He's obviously in the in the toy store trying to steal a Christmas yeah. present for his daughter. It's a whole story of like some of my personal favorite movies. A guy who's lost trying to find his way, and then by the end, he's working for Perry. He's I guess presumably in a relationship with Harmony and, and well, things fall in place. Well, no, because at the at the beginning of the movie, when he's doing that opening narration, he he mentions and it didn't last, things like that don't. So mm-hmm. we start off the movie knowing that this relationship that we're watching is doomed by the time right. the narr- by That's the time true. we catch up with the narration, which is also something that I think is I think it's great to have this because it's almost in a way of going. Okay, look, they're not going to work out, so don't focus on that too much. Don't don't think on it too much. If it's a romantic comedy, the couple is Harry and Perry, not Harry and Harmony, I think is is the takeaway that the ending gives you, regardless of, yeah, of that, the the Harmony storyline. Yeah, it's it's funny because the amount of tropes, romantic comedy tropes that exist in this are pretty abundant you've got the gay best friend but you also have the story where you're trying to get the person but it turns out it was your best friend all along that you should have been with like it's you you're getting a lot of really fun romantic comedy tropes being adapted for 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 this like crime thriller but they're also presented 
in keeping with Harry's buffoonish ways, but he's not even competent at telling the story, which is which yes. is part of the movie's charm. The narration, obviously, like we said, is is very self-aware. It's it's very he makes mistakes in the storytelling. He'll tell you one thing and be like, oh shit, I set up that thing about the yeah. robot. Oh, I yes. have to go back to that. <laughs> Hold on, here it is. If you care, like whatever. It's like, and it gives Shane Black free reign to be to at the end of the movie when Perry is not dead, be like, oh yeah, I know it's that movie thing. Yeah. And yeah, it happens all the time. Oh, let's just bring them all back. And then he's just, but what am I supposed to do? And it, 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 in this case, it really happened. Meanwhile, the nurse is pushing out Lincoln, old yeller, Elvis. Um, <laughs> but it's, but it's like someone else. Trick. I can't remember who the other one is. I think the, uh, the pink hair girl is there too. In that sequence, the one that, that dies in the, when, when Harry's hiding under yeah, the bed. Possibly, yeah. yeah. I think she's in there too. Oh, it's um, the, it's the, no, it's the henchmen. It's the, it's the two it's the two main henchmen that also come in and are like super friendly of like hey, <laughs> like they're super happy to see them. <laughs> yeah, that that's he that's another great moment since we're touching on it when he uh, witnesses that girl's that girl's murder and he like he very adamantly stands up, grabs the gun and shoots the guy like it's finally standing up and fighting for something. I thought that was a a low-key powerful moment for him but it's but yeah the way it's written black gives himself a, a constant out to do whatever the hell he wants it's and speaking of robert Downey jr it reminds me of something like uh, reminds me of avengers endgame where obviously there's the thing where dr strange looks into the future and there's only one possible outcome and yeah. so anything that anybody criticizes is like well it must have been a different timeline that rat had to step on that button so that ant-man could come back <laughs> so you like excuse any storytelling flaws just right off the bat and i think that's as as a writer I, uh, myself i think that's really clever i'd love to hear more about you mentioning how this movie was instrumental or very impactful on you as a writer I'd, like to, I'd love to hear more about how that affected you creatively and some of the inspiration that it gave you. I got into the dialogue scene, how well the way I talked could actually get used in, in film, which made me more confident with the idea of writing. But the, the whole idea of a character who's in a genre they don't want to be in, that because shortly before or after this movie i can't remember which now i read a book called the gun seller by hugh laurie the actor from house and avenue five and and many movies and it's again it's a film noir book with a guy who very much knows that he's in a film noir and does not want to be has a very much of a get me the hell out of here mentality and so that got me a little more confident with writing some ideas and i would start writing some shorts and then I got to I got to the first college I went to for our final film. The short film that I wrote got rejected, no matter what I would do to it. The the teacher kept rejecting it. So I finally just went, okay, let's pick a let's pick a movie, find a scene. And then I ended up picking Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And the scene where Terry calls Perry about the dead body in the bathroom. I'm sorry, you you peed on, on the corpse of my question. Is, no, my question, I get to go first. Why in perfect hell would you pee on a corpse? I didn't intend to. It's not like I did it for kicks. God, this isn't happening. You said this doesn't happen. This is your fault. Shut up and listen. 
First, you have to wrap the body. Okay. Second, you've got to find the gun. Say this with me. Find the gun. Find the gun. Find the gun. Oh, in the lake. Not my gun, idiot. They dropped a body and it's a frame up. Then they also have planted a gun. Trust me. Move it. I'll be there in four minutes. From there all the way to when Harmony finds them in the street with the, the dead body in the car. Right. So it was that whole thing, but I had to do some adapting to how I wrote it. It had to start completely different. I had to literally come up with, okay, what what is an appropriate voiceover line to to start this? And then because I needed to essentially get all of the harmony and, and Harry relationship conveyed to the classmate who was going to play harmony for the end part of the scene because she we're none of us really had time to watch movies unless we didn't want to get sleep at night so i i wrote an entire new version of the what happens beforehand so i wrote a whole new harry harmony scene to try to summarize the entire relationship between the two characters in one scene and so because I was writing so much around this film itself, it got me a lot of practice. So then when I went to the, my next school where I got my bachelor's, by the time that we were having to write for class, I was already, I already had notebooks and USB drives full of stuff in, in my dorm room all ready to go at that point from writing all sorts of stuff. And now I've got stacks of outlines and, and log lines and a couple of scripts sitting in my my office at home to to sit and pick at. It's it really is like I, I can totally understand why you would see this and be inspired by it because it, it's it breaks a lot of the narrative rules and and does so in such a effective in a, such an effective way that that it 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 they always tell you don't use voiceover because it's cliche, et cetera, et cetera. But in this case, it it does add so much personality yeah. and texture to the story. And then never mind all the the obviously genius banter and back and forth with the characters. So that makes that makes a lot of sense why you would see something like this and be like, ooh, I, I need to tap into Shane Black's uh, mindset yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. And the way that it, it, one thing I noticed on this rewatch, and I, like I said, I've seen this a few times over the years is that the this the movie is so tightly constructed that elements mm. from one scene show up in a couple scenes later in like little subtle ways that I never even noticed like he's Harry says early in the movie something like oh I'm sure you're maybe you're wondering about the about the robot thing maybe maybe not maybe you're just wondering how silly buddy picks shit out of comic books I don't know yeah. and then later on when you see like a couple few scenes later when you see harmony flashback with the Johnny Gossamer book, she's like playing with the silly putty on a picture yep. from the book or like the protocop thing that is mentioned early in the, in the <laughs> toy department. And then later on with harmony and, and like on the news and, and what's his face fall protocop actor falls. Yep. It's like things like that where you're like, wow, it's his, like it, it, it really makes you appreciate black storytelling prowess. So it makes, it makes a lot of sense to me that this would be one of those movies that would really, that you'd keep coming back to just either for direct inspiration for things that you're working on or just to refresh and, and make your get, get excited about telling stories again, because 
that's that that's the the vibe not only of the script that Black wrote, but also this movie itself is a a tribute to Hollywood to storytelling because the whole thing is set off by a series of books which was then adapted into a movie and then yeah. <laughs> influences the entire plot. So it's it's a real art, life imitates art, limitates life vibe underlying this entire thing. This movie is a weird intersection between movies that are meant to be love letters, like um, Singing in the Rain, obviously mm-hmm. is a love letter to, to Hollywood and to the silent film era and to that transitional point. And then films that are observational humor, like Steve Martin's L.A. story, which is still one as someone who lived in L.A., it's still one of the funniest movies in the world to me, just because I've seen so much of that actually happen, not on the the overblown scale that happens in that movie. But this is a fantastic intersection to the point where I like they talk about in the movie a little bit. I knew men and women who made sure they always looked nice. So that way, if something was good, like, so that way, if they found themselves suddenly with a news crew interviewing people because something terrible happened, (laughs) they'd be ready to be on there and look their best in case a casting agent was, was watching the news. Like I knew people who did that just like harmony does. Like you, you get that great thing. Like there's the harmony that discovers the, the protocol actor But then when you get to her in the, you cut to her on the news conference, she suddenly has a much lower cut shirt. She clearly put on a, a a, a more flattering bra. She, she made sure all that are all the, all smooth edges for her hair, got a little bit more makeup on. Like you can tell that she is in the time between calling the cops about the, the guy laying on, on the cement in front of her apartment that she immediately went into her closet and got herself ready. And I knew people like that. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's that fantastic blend of, of love letter and, and observational humor that lives as the, the personality for the, for LA. Cause LA definitely has a, a, is a character and a personality in this movie, which is an important part to making the film as good as it is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I now that now that you mentioned about living in LA, now I really want to know how much of this, like how how accurate is this movie in addition to what you've already said? And also, is there is there anything specific about your experience living in LA that that affects either your your reading or your appreciation of this movie? If there's if there's anything in addition to what you already mentioned. Well, obviously when I initially watched this movie, I was still living in a small town, but when I when I went out to college and started making this film, even when we were making the the short film version of that one scene, we went to the apartment complex to see if we were allowed to throw a fake body off of the roof of the apartment <laughs> complex. And the guy was so excited <laughs> that he was like people that like everyone even if even if it's just to be able to have a, a six degrees of separation, right? If it seems like you you might be the next big thing, they are happy to extend a hand to you. And then the people that are in the industry are just completely disillusioned at times. I, when we did this film and we needed the fake body and we needed security guard uniforms, 
because of the school I was going to, we actually got to go to the Edith Head costume and prop department at Universal Studios to get stuff, which was just an amazing location to be in. But they had uh, somebody help helped us to find the stuff that we needed, and they had racks for costumes that were being picked, pulled out for different movies. We walked past one, and it was for a not-yet-announced Transformers sequel. Oh, wow. And... We immediately both went, wait, they're making another one of those. And the guy who was helping us, who was generally in good spirits, you just saw him die a little bit as he had to go. Yep. Yeah, they're, they've been in here a lot lately. Getting right for that. And you just saw like just his exhaustion. Like Everyone has their opinions of this is what should or shouldn't get made. And people's energy, depending on on it is is always hysterical but then yeah there's also you go to bars and clubs and stuff like that and you see all the you see the people that are really trying to present themselves of like i'm wearing a nice suit and i'm sitting i'm sitting over here where people hopefully can see me the waiters that are all models and actresses so they're really trying to put on a show for the people that are dressed the nicest all all these little things that you see in this movie are are dead on accurate. I was going to mention that that cuz there's multiple scenes in this movie at varying LA parties or or whatever where people start talking to Harry and they they're like, "Okay, I'm going to see who else is here." Yep. Uh and he's like, "Oh, that's it." And she's like, "Yep." And he's like, oh, "Okay." Yeah. All right, great. Yes. <laughs> and and yeah. I was going to ask how accurate that was, but you I guess already answered that. The, the difference between how staff te- treats Perry and how with how well he presents himself versus how they treat Harry, who even before his hand is all bandaged up because he's down a finger, that stark contrast is even funnier to me now because, yeah, it's, it's dead on. I'd go to places in a T-shirt and it would take me an hour to get Coke and fries. Whereas somebody who walked in a half an hour after me in a suit would get all their stuff in five minutes because right. you gotta you gotta make them happy just in case. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I want to circle back a little to Harmony, the third part of this. Mm-hmm. This movie really it's it's often when it is talked about, it's talked about in the context of Robert Downey Jr.'s career on the cover of the DVD and the poster and all that. It's him and Val Kilmer mostly taking up most of the screen, but it really is a, a true three-hander with the two of them yep. and Michelle Monaghan. You mentioned the, her on the news and I imagine just off screen, she was she already prepared a scene for when she's yeah. interviewed. <laughs> and so she had her, her whole like spiel ready to go. I also love... The first of all, I, I this is the first time I'd seen her in anything. This is the year Same. before uh Mission Impossible 3, which obviously I'm a huge fan of that franchise, mm-hmm. and she's been in a, a couple of them, most notably three and, and Fallout from a couple years ago. What was what is it about harmony that that is so endearing, and as well as what Michelle Monaghan brings to it? Because she's the, the secret sauce that makes this movie work. Because obviously, those two guys we've seen before. We know what they can do. We haven't seen them quite do this in this way, but Michelle Monaghan comes in and really elevates the whole thing. Well, she, Harmony in this film, funnily enough, I would I would argue that Harmony in this film is the 
template of which everybody should focus on when they're writing Lois Lane in a Superman movie. A- she's very much in control when whenever she's around. And even though we we do have nudity with her character, but especially the f- the first time, it's meant as it's it's very much at Harry's expense of like making him more awkward and just showing showing where he's at in terms of his relationship with Harmony. So and it's never like there's always for lack of a nice so lack of a better way to put it, there's there's a special way that female nudity is definitely filmed and we get close to it in the mirror shot when she's undressing. But we never quite film her in the way that you normally film film female nudity in films. And it it helps keep it from seeming overly gratuitous. Like there's there's obviously arguments as to whether or not it's necessary, but it never feels like 80s. It never feels like the first lethal weapon where you're sitting there and you're sitting there in the opening credits going, I don't know why I'm spending five minutes with a topless woman. Climbing onto a, a hotel railing, but okay. Right. There's a there's also I'm thinking of like in Demolition Man, if you've seen that, where yes. he turns the TV on for two seconds and it's a topless woman. <laughs> and she's like, oh my gosh, sorry, wrong number. And I'm like, what was the point of thank you, I guess, movie, but yeah. also what was the point of that? I mean, yes. Yeah, no. I was just gonna say he Shane Black definitely got started his career at the, the strength of it at a point where at the 80s, if you were an R-rated movie in the 80s, there was like a studio mandate that you had to have at least one topless woman in your movie at some point, somehow. The, the first Lethal Weapon has it. The first RoboCop has it. Even Die Hard has it. Mm-hmm. Like all these movies have the this you know random gratuitous nudity that's not necessarily long. It's in there just enough to be... A, to make me go, oh, that was a studio mandate. As if in market research, male audience is going to be like, yeah, there was no, there were no boobs in this movie. So I don't know if I can, if I can rate it as highly as you want, as you want. There's definitely, there's definitely a a world to explore in terms of what in the eighties they were trying to learn they could get away with. As we saw by all the eighties comedies that don't hold up in a (laughs) legal way, but you definitely can feel that Shane Black, the way he's been writing his whole career sensibility of inserting it in there, but there's been enough time that he can control it to a certain extent. It's also not the defining moments for her character. Like right. it's not it's not like she's a character where the main moments for her character are her nudity moments. If anything, they are they're they're near the the bottom of the rung because again she is the character who's in the most control in this film even though she's done freelance undercover work for for perry and because she has this pseudo to not at all romantic past with with harry and even though she needs the the work that corbin bernston or uh, larry miller can give her she is in control at all mm-hmm. times. What, what I think is interesting about Harmony is she's not just, she's not the girl next door or the femme fatale. She's all of the above mm-hmm. mashed together. And 
early on, Harry sees her at the party, doesn't really realize who she is, and then meets her again at the bar, well, or tracks her down, I guess, at the bar. And and then she has that that uh, conversation with Harry where she's pointing across the bar. Clearly, I'm interrupting. I feel badly. Let me. What are you drinking? Bad. Bad. Sorry. Feel. You feel bad. Bad. Mm, badly is an adverb. So to say you feel badly would be saying that the mechanism which allows you to feel is broken. Well, <clears throat> that one over there. Um. Which way? Oh God, Nick's Nick's. That's the blonde. The blonde's pathetic. Because. Well, for starters. She's been fucked more times than she's had hot meals. You know, I heard about that. It was neck and neck, and then she skipped lunch. First thing, though. Mm, you tell. Worst thing is she's 35 years old and still trying to act. Yeah. I see her auditions all the time. It's over, baby. You're best. Charitable of you. May I ask how old you are? Mm. Go for it. Okay, how old are you? 34. Yeah. I'm a baby. It's like she's on the cusp of about to lose her window and i and i love that the movie sets that up where she's just been struggling trying to make her dream come true we we learn about her her past with her father abusing her sister and the guilt she carries for leaving her sister behind especially when her sister is found dead as the whole movie progresses with mm-hmm. the johnny gossamer style double case yep your, your case and my case are the same just fucking me. case <laughs> um <laughs> which i love and the movie is touching on what you just said with the nudity in films and how the depiction of women in, in these action movies is some, somewhat questionable back in the day. It, it rides this really interesting line between Harry almost insinuating things about her, her sexual life and what she's willing to do for a role. And when she, when he's trying to, to he kills a spider and she yep. thinks that he was trying to grab her and then and she's like, oh, it's fine, whatever. And he's like, wait, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean, whatever? What guys are you hanging out with? And I like, there's a few scenes like that where they're, the movie's trying to, I think, confront something there. And, and as someone who enjoys the movie so much, I was curious, what do you think that, that Black is trying to point out? Just, I guess, the double standard in the industry? I think it's a mixture of the double standard. I think it's also showing a little bit of how she punishes herself mm-hmm. for for what she's done with her her sister. Also, in in this age of post, finding out that Harvey Weinstein is as scummy as he's always looked, having having her say something like that, and have that mentality and attitude about it while she's trying to make it in the industry, it's 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 showing that that these were issues that were definitely long existing and and long dealt with so unfortunately again the the her having that attitude very accurate the the whole attitude about ages sadly very accurate i was flat out told in in college by a couple of teachers that i wouldn't realistically have a um, steady acting career until i was 35 which of course is complete opposite of, of what I was going to say, women, you but, think... but I was in college when I, when I was in my twenties, I could grow out a beard and look like I was in my thirties or I could shave my face and look like I was 15. So they teachers were just like, eh, no, you, because you're not consistent with your voice and how you look, uh, it's, you're not going to have a steady acting career till you're 35, which unfortunately is another reason why I started to gravitate towards writing. But I did also want to point out on the lighter side of things the movie's running gag of pointing out people and how much they look like celebrities (laughs) very much 
a thing. My friends and I still laugh if we say Mexican Sean Hayes. <laughs> because we all remember this one manager for for uh, Denny's that we would go to. And that's as soon as somebody said that, none of us could see anything else. But it was it's a regular thing. It's a norm because, of course, if you're trying to sell yourself, you're trying to sell yourself as the next or like right. my room. My roommate was Japanese Joseph Gordon Lovett. That was like that was his hook. Because he he looked and sounded in that in that wheelhouse to the point where teachers kept saying like watch everything that he has done and absorb everything that he has done because that's the career you're going to want to be aiming for. Even the stuff that's just a running gag in that film is surprisingly accurate. Yeah, it's it, you're only as valuable as as far as how someone can relate you to. Mm-hmm. It, things that are already successful. That's you, you. You see that all the time with all the log lines of movies. Die Hard on a blah, on a blank, yep. on a whatever. We had like twenty years of Die Hard on a plane, on a train, yes. and a, that's the, the movie even name checks Seagal. So it's like all the under siege movies are basically that. Yeah. So that, I think that that's a good point. That's interesting. That the the film is is you have to imagine Black is bringing us so much of his own experience, having been in Hollywood for so long to to this this satirical look at the LA scene and the, the dark underbelly that's that's hidden beneath the, the 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 silver screen dreams perception of it all yeah it's especially got to be weird for him because like i can only imagine him pitching the last boy scout and there was probably some there was probably one uneducated producer that he or studio executive that he ended up with at some point that was like, oh, this just seems like the, just like another version of Lethal Weapon. It seems like you're trying to just copy the people who made Lethal Weapon and Shane Black <laughs> having to sit there and go, yeah, yeah, I'm copying those people. <laughs> yeah, I wrote Lethal Weapon, dumbass. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I, I think we're, we're winding down. Is there any any particular moments or or one-liners from this movie you wanted to point out before we start bringing this all together? Still, for me, one of my favorite lines in the whole movie is when, right, is once Gay Perry and Harry are, are leaving the party and Harry just looks at him, are you still, are you, are you still, and Perry just goes, gay? No, I'm knee-deep in pussy, which is like the name so much, can't get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, pretty much everything everything Perry says, I think, is yes. an, this is one where the IMDb quotes page is probably like a mile long. <laughs> yes. Oh <laughs> yes. Because um, there's just so much. Him saying, uh, "Oh, you, you know, look, look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll see? It's yeah. like a picture of me. It's like no, the definition of the word idiot. Which you fucking, <laughs> which are. fucking are. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's, that's, yeah. That's another great one. But yeah, the whole scene about them ditching the body. I, I love the the dropping it from the roof, the the kissing to to throw off the cops, all that stuff. It's why it, it's part of why I immediately was like, that's the scene we're doing when mm-hmm. when we were picking out something to do in college, just because I love that whole scene so much. The writing is so good and just so solid across the board. It's the kind of detective story crime thriller thing oh we just go we got to get rid of this body it's a scenario that would be in a million other stories but in a way that you've never seen it before yes and that and that scene as you were saying earlier it involves all three characters so it brings all that 
brings the three the the three main characters to a head there in, yeah. in a really fun and surprising way. And even the kiss, Harry doesn't like. Harry reacts like like roast out, but like unexpected, but not in a way that's offensive, particularly to Perry as a, as a gay man. It's 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 not like yeah. it's you, played in a way that you're like, okay, he didn't expect that, and he's not he's not gay, so that's not what he really wanted. But it's also he's not like, oh, get away from me. Yeah, it feels more like he hates the idea of kissing Perry, not he hates the idea of kissing a gay person. Right. Like it's the exactly. like. Even if like that scene would have played out exactly the same if Perry was straight, the the there was no like homophobia. Yeah, I've never felt like there was any homophobia right. about that scene whatsoever. We actually, when we did our short film version, instead because we couldn't, we didn't have the money to rent a cop car or anything like that, so we just had security guards come out at a side door and walk past them, and so we told them to each improvise something. And we just, the only thing we told them was make it funny, but don't make it homophobic. They had a lot of fun with that. We had like five or six takes to pick, <laughs> to, to try to pick what they say. But yeah, that, that whole, that whole section of the movie to me is, is like the high point of what this movie is and what it accomplishes. Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. I'm I'm curious as a writer, as someone who's revisited this a lot, has your read of it really changed since that first initial viewing, blind buying it on DVD, and then obviously using it as an inspiration for for school projects and things like that? Is there anything particularly about this movie that's changed? Like looking at back at it now, I, I guess the two the two main things that have changed for me one is the whole living in LA changing how I perceived some of the 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 jokes and the little bits in the movie because now LA wasn't this mythical place as Perry calls it at one point in the movie. For me, it was this real place that I was living in, experiencing. So the the movie became funnier and more relatable in a weird way because I was Harry. I was the the idiot that was suddenly in L.A. experiencing people behaving this way and not understanding it at all. But also between writing, but also writing, doing the doing the adapting for it, I I just gained a stronger appreciation of how tight the dialogue is. There's nothing in this movie that I feel you could delete or that you could edit out, delete, whatever. And the movie would play tighter. It would, it would, anything that you take out of this movie, the movie would suffer for because you'd be losing some character stuff. You'd be losing some plot stuff, all of it integral. There's, there's no excess fat to this film. And, these days that's just almost unheard of yeah it's it's a tight 103 minutes and even when it it balances these drastic tonal shifts i think the most uh, egregious being the end of the movie in the hospital yay perry's alive and then he says oh don't worry i saw lord of the rings we're not gonna have a million endings (laughs) (laughs) no hobbits jumping on beds and stuff and then cuts to perry's confrontation with harmony's dad Mm-hmm. which is probably the most intense scene in the movie, I would say. I agree. Uh, Do I know you? No. Just in town for the funeral. What do you want? Well, I was going to go to the zoo, but it was closed, so I thought I'd come here and look at an animal. Son of a... Who do you think you're talking to? I, I buried my daughter today. 
No. You buried her 20 years ago. Harmony was right. Her sister was murdered. You pulled the trigger. It just took this long for the bullet to hit. Who are you? I love my girl. Oh, fucker. If I could get out of this bed. Yeah? Well, you can't. You bastard. Oh, man, that can't defend himself. Big, tough guy. Yeah, that's right. Big, tough guy. And then directly back to them being like, oh, what are you, stop talking, get out of my chair, or whatever, like, <laughs> stop narrating, like, and then ends on, on a comedic note. So it goes like ridiculous comedy, interplay, whatever, buddy cop thing. Then this really dark, intense scene of Perry confronting this abusive father and then right back to the, to the yeah. it shouldn't work, but it, it does because it's the movie acknowledging, hey, listen, I know we've all had fun here, but like Harry trying to, I feel like I'm trying to find a message like Harry is at the end of the movie, yeah. but it, it acknowledges that some of the elements of the story are very dark and very, very ill-fitting seemingly for this genre, but it, it ties the, a bow up on that nicely so that you you get that sense of closure at least before you leave the movie yeah complete with an apology to the east coast for swearing so much <laughs> yeah yeah so we said fuck so much yeah yeah just a I great love it. so good so for people that haven't seen this movie can you sell them on why they should check it out it's not streaming i don't think at the moment at least not you know readily available it is you can rent it so that it is available to rent so what how would you what would you tell people to inspire them to finally check out kiss kiss bang bang if they haven't yeah so to to my knowledge yeah I, the film is not available for streaming at the moment but it is definitely worth a rent the big thing i would say it as a comparison thing if you're somebody who likes Coen Brothers movies, especially Fargo, this lives in that vein. This lives in that, in, in a similar world to that. So if, you know, obviously if you're somebody who likes Robert Downey Jr., this is going to be a big winner for you. If you're somebody who likes your movies with some edge to them, with some language to them, with, with a little bit of action, this is this is an ideal movie for you. But yeah, I'd say Fargo is probably the most mainstream film that I would say if you like that, you would like this. I feel like I hear people more talking about the nice guys even. So I would even extend yeah. that to if you saw the nice guys and you're like, what a brilliant movie. It's like I would counter that with, do you want to see the better movie that came before it <laughs> um, from the same writer director? Not that, and I love the nice guys. I have that as well on my shelf on Blu-ray. So it's not, I'm not knocking that movie. I just, it feels like Shane Black was like, all right, I made this great movie that the people that saw it loved, but nobody saw it. How can I do that again? But, it, <laughs> you know, make it a period piece. And, and because it's very much, it, 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 it kiss kiss bang bang feels very much like the template for the nice guys and i would yes. also throw out if for people that are, are grew up with the the 80s 90s like the lethal weapons for example yes because they, they don't make this movie very much anymore everything no. is either pg-13 or it's straight to streaming it's it, they don't no. make hard r adult and adult action 
comedies like this anymore. I, well, I, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, these days, if you get a movie, you'll get a movie like, I can't remember what the movie's called anymore, but the Dave Batista and Kamal Najari, the, oh, yeah, their, their movie. Yeah, Stuber, yeah. You get movies like that where it's the movie's more just over the top caricatures. You don't you don't get films that are the the like two opposites of the odd couples going out and doing an action film thing. You don't really get that without it being caricature and cartoony. Whereas right. this is much more more grounded as weird as it is to think of this film in that way <laughs> yeah now and i feel like to that end we're so i grew up as i was saying with all those all those action movies in the 80s and 90s and i i feel like we're so bereft of that content that even a movie from 2014's like let's be cops which is not a great movie but it it, it it's again about these two guys friends who are struggling, lost in their life, and they dress as cops for a party, and they're mistaken for real cops. So one of them decides, you know what? Let's just real, let's just really be cops. Let's just go out and pretend we're actual cops, and stumble upon this like basically a going to war with like a local gang lord, and it becomes a whole thing. That movie also R-rated, also action comedy, also fish out of water. Not nearly as good as this one, but it it, it captures a vibe that I feel like we've lost in the last. 10, 15 years. Agreed. Another one actually would be Martin McDonough's In Bruges. Yeah, good call. If you're if you're a fan of In Bruges, this is definitely in that same vein of banter and people being in worlds and genres and stuff like that that they don't want to be in and that they're not interested, they don't like. And it's I that's that's definitely a very similar movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's all I have. Thank you so much, Thomas, for coming on the show and talking Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I hope I hope a few people will listen to this and, and go and, and blind buy those Blu-rays or DVDs, oh, yeah. whatever their poison is. Just because, yeah, it's it's worth it. I think it's, if you heard our recommendations and any of that sounds interesting, I feel, I feel, I feel confident in saying just go ahead and spend the like 10, 15 bucks and buy it and you won't yeah. be disappointed. Yeah, this is yeah, this is a movie I can confirm from experience. If you go on YouTube, watch the trailer after listening to this, and those two things make you go, "This is a movie I'd want to see." Buy it. Yeah, yeah, just buy 100%. it. One hundred percent, definitely. So, Thomas, can you tell people where they can find you on social? Media? Yeah, we right now we live exclusively on Twitter, so you can find the show at Movies Work on Twitter. That's usually me running the show on there, so it's my ranting and rambling and ravings that are on there. I always like to disclaimer that so Alex doesn't have to take the heat for anything I say. <laughs> well, this was so much fun, Thomas, and we'll definitely try and get you back on here, either this show or or my other show, Franchise Detours, where we talk about movie series. If, you, if there's anything particular that, that you want to talk about, either either show, let me know. We'll definitely we'll definitely do this again at some point. Oh, I've uh, yeah, I can I can imagine that I can find a few things to talk about on either end. And yeah, thank you again for having me. This has been an absolute blast. Awesome. Thanks, Thomas. Big thanks to Thomas Green from Movies After Work for coming on to discuss Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. This has been a personal favorite movie of mine for a long time. I uh, really love the performances as we discussed, as well as 
the intricate and overly complicated at times uh, storyline that Black has put out there. I think he has a very unique voice that over the years, maybe since this film and Iron Man 3 has kind of been dampened. I wasn't the hugest fan of The Predator, but I would heavily recommend, as we said in this episode, The Nice Guys, which is a really strong kind of spiritual companion piece to this film, I believe. So I want to know, what do you think about Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? Have you even seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? Because as we said, not exactly a box office smash of uh, MCU level proportions. So let me know on Twitter at Crooked Table, the same handle on Instagram and via email at robert at crookedtable.com. For now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. Hopefully we'll be back in a couple of weeks, maybe even sooner with the next episode of this show. But until then, stay crooked, everyone. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the